Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. During the Ask Me Anything time, or AMA time, with Nick this past Sunday, April 26th, we asked questions about the sermon and he had 90 seconds to answer each one. In this episode, Nick Gibson and Nicole Kyle are following up on the ones they didn't get to. They discuss topics including imitating other Christians and the assurance of salvation. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We would also love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. It's Nicole here. I'm with Nick. Hey, guys. And we're going to answer some questions in the... um, from our last service on April 26th, we had a lot of uh, AMA questions come in, and we answered a lot on Sunday. Well, we, you, <laughs> answered a lot on Sunday, um, but we still have quite a few to go through today. So we're going to try and get through all of these in a, um, you know. Effectively. And yeah. AMA means ask me anything for those That's who don't right. talk like the kids these days. Right. Well, and I, I especially like when people ask a question that actually isn't related to the sermon. That's kind of, it's fun when those get thrown in there. Yeah, because it's ask me anything, right? Same exactly. Thing. Yeah. All right. So we're going to jump in. Uh, before we jump into the questions, though, um, just for some context, in case you're only listening to the podcast, we started a new series in First Thessalonians. And um Nick, you started us with the first chapter, verses 1 through 10, and you you kind of just gave us the thesis for the whole series about how we are to be both imitators of godly people and of God and Christ himself, and to be examples for others to imitate. And um, so these questions, most of them are um, related to that. But before we do jump in, is there anything else you want to say about what you preached on before we jump yes. into this? Okay, please Yeah, do. about 50 minutes worth. That's why <laughs> I intend to spend two more sermons on chapter one. So, yeah, yeah we'll cover that stuff. It'll, it'll happen. Okay. All right, great. Then let's just go with the first question. In imitating someone or anything, we give up some confidence of doing the right thing, as we might get if we found out the hard way. Where do you draw the line between good imitation and foolish, blithe imitation? So I'm not 100% convinced that the first sentence of that question really fits the second sentence. Okay, uh, same. <laughs> so maybe we've got two so, questions yeah. here. Yeah, so... um I'm not sure that learning the hard way is the only way to really have confidence that you're going to do something the right way. Hmm. I think that you can observe other people doing things in certain ways and then decide on the basis of your observation. Right. Um, In fact, I, I think one of the things that we're all trying to trying to do is learn the hard way as little as possible. Yeah. And so I think learning the hard way is kind of the last resort mm-hmm. and the sort of thing we're trying to help each other avoid. So I think in a mentoring relationship, you've got a number of things that help you have confidence you're doing the right thing. One is when the mentor can point to the written word of God and the example of Christ and his apostles, so to speak, then that's good evidence. That's the way we're supposed to do it. Right. Also, they can tell you what they've learned in doing it that way. And so you can you can learn from them explaining their experience. You can also yeah. watch what it's produced in their life. And so, for example, if you have somebody who's um, acting as a mentor in your life and that person has a really terrible relationship with their children. Sure. And they're teaching you about parenting. You know, that's a good opportunity to be like, you know what? I'm not sure. I'm going to do it just like that person. Yeah. Right. So I just, I just don't think that A follows from B here. Mm-hmm. 
Um, when it comes to the difference between good imitation and foolish blithe imitation, I, I would say that imi- even imitation should be prudential, right? Like it should go along with what God's word says. You should see right. good fruit in the life of the people you're imitating. You should, they should come on good authority. Like other people should respect them. Mm-hmm. There's lots of ways to, to think through what you're imitating before you do it. Mm-hmm. Your parenting example isn't a, I mean, fits this yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's a false dichotomy. Yeah. There is such a thing as foolish and blithe imitation. That's true. Um, but most of that is just unthinking. It's going along with the crowd. It's trying to be cool. It's staying mm-hmm. with the mob. And so you just do what everybody's doing because you're afraid not to because yeah. of the ostracization or how you'll be rejected. That's different than looking at something that you think is valuable and saying, I want to be like that. Sure. You know, your intuitive mind at least is saying, I like that. I like how that goes, how that works, how they're doing it. Let's be more like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're drawn to it. And so that's why you, that's why you do it. Right. Yeah. So. All right. The next question says, some Old Testament scholars think that an ethic of imitation is absent in the Old Testament. Do you think that there is a rich invitation to imitate Yahweh in the Old Testament? Um, I'm, I always hold phrases like, some blank scholars think... Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't really know what Old Testament scholars this person speaking of or what they actually say. Generally speaking, in a lot of Old Testament criticism or scholarship, there's a lot of emphasis given to what scholars call motifs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like a theme that'll come up again and again and again. And um, I, I think you could probably argue that the rabbi discipleship relationship that Jesus capitalized on and and that is portrayed throughout the New Testament in making disciples is not in the Old Testament like it's in the New Testament. I think you could argue that. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there's a strong relationship in many characters in the Old Testament. For example, Joshua being mentored by and imitating Moses. Yeah. Um, I think that you see it in the schools of the prophets in Samuel and first and second Kings. Yeah. For example, Elijah and Elisha, but even with Elisha, there was a school of prophets. There's actually a number of schools of prophets. So those schools of prophets were discipleship communities and communities of imitation within the realm of the prophetic and prophetic didn't just mean telling the future. It meant speaking the truth. It was, it was pastoral as well as um, spiritually miraculous. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I think David probably learned a lot from Saul. I, I mean, I think there are, there are relationships of protégés and discipleship in the Old Testament. But but I think is it as strong a motif? No, I don't. I would say so. But the whole, I mean, if you get less technical about it, the whole giving of the law, for example, is Yahweh telling people what He was like and telling them to be like that, right? Um, and then his whole point was, you're going to be priests, that is, the kind of people who re- represent me to right. the whole world. And by looking at the nation of Israel, the whole world is going to know what I'm like and what it's like to be in a relationship with me. Yeah. Right? So in that sense, the whole concept of Israel is an idea right. of imitating Yahweh and being like well, Yahweh and being a witness for Yahweh in the earth, for example. When I, when I first read this question, I thought immediately of um, when – it's written in the law, be holy as I am holy. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like a pretty, a, example. a pretty clear right. um, command to imitate. Right. And even in the first chapter of the Bible, right? Why is the, why is the earth created in seven days? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people are like, oh, those are just like the order of the creation of the ages of the old earth. Other, you know, St. Augustine, before there were a lot of theories of evolution that were kind of in the modern sense, he believed that the, God created the universe in like a millisecond. He's like, he didn't take him seven whole days. That's way too long. Yeah. God made the earth in a millisecond, but he tells it in seven days like this. Why? Well, because later on when he gives the law, he's going to structure the human work week around it. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. in that sense, our all of our work is the imitation of God, right? Mm-hmm. God 
takes dominion over the chaotic pre-creation in Genesis 1. He mm-hmm. creates the human beings and says, take dominion over the earth and subdue it. So mm-hmm. he gives us the exact role he gave. In Genesis 1, he names things. He calls them good. In right. Genesis 2, Adam has to name everything. Mm-hmm. Right. So like all through the Old Testament, if you have an mm-hmm. eye to see this, it's there. Right. Now, from an Old Testament scholarship perspective, is it a motif, like a theme the Old Testament author is weaving through book to book to book? No, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that Old Testament scholars wrong to say that. Sure. But I would say the idea that there's no imitation in the Old Testament is just empirically false. Yeah. So it depends on how much you want to push that idea of how much there's a, quote, ethic of imitation. Yeah. And I don't really like scholarly categories like that because they tend to create these, like, rigid categories that I, I don't think are really intended in the text itself. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. So yes and no is the answer to that. Yeah. There's a lot of imitation in the Old Testament, though. Yeah. Whether or not it's a strong intentional motif is whatever. I think sure. there. I think it's there, but I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't think it's as strong as the New Testament, explicitly using the rabbi, student, discipler, mm-hmm. disciple model for everything. Right. Right. So, in that sense, no. Yeah. All right. We're going to move into a, a, a number of questions that were related to um, the assurance of our salvation. So let's start with this very pastoral question. What would you say to someone who longs to, but doesn't feel assured that they are saved? I I think sometimes it's important to recognize that you can act in a certain way towards something without feeling the attending feeling you think you ought to have. And that actually is the repetition you need to later produce that feeling. Mm -hmm. So there are some brain psychologists who say now that after about age seven, you're no longer in a sufficiently imaginative state to just learn and change on the fly because your mind has made a lot of choices and those choices has, have been instantiated by actually neural roots in your brain. And so in order to change those, you can change them. It just takes a lot of repetition. Yeah. In that way, the repetitions of religious faith, particularly the biblical ones are repetitions that help change how your mind works. And we didn't know until this century how it worked sure. in terms of neurological rewiring Right. But Christians have always known in, in religious f- people in the Jewish tradition and have always known that certain rituals of repetition were fundamental to long-term true spirituality. So what I would do is I would say, l- look at the thing you want to have a feeling about, whether it's your assurance of your faith or loving your wife that you don't feel like you love anymore or whatever it is, Right. And determine in your mind what you think is lovely about it. What What is its objective right to your adoration? Right. And then confess and profess that continually. Say a little and, bit what you mean by confess and profess. Right. So in worship, for example, one of the reasons we have musical worship and prayer worship is to engage the repetition of telling God how magnificent he is. Part of the reason, the main first reason is because God deserves for that to be redounded in his universe, his worthiness, his magnificence. And he deserves to receive receive back the right thanks for what he has done and who he is. But in, in addition to that, our, our reveling in his magnificence helps us emotionally connect with the truth of it and helps us feel the magnificence, right? And so people have this experience. They'll, they'll worship for weeks or something like that. And then in the middle of a song, it'll just hit them and they'll feel it. And sometimes it's for like three seconds, but it's euphoric. It's, it's me- very meaningful. And they're like, this is true. This is real. It's big. It's a sublime or a transcendent experience, right? 
And it's not something you can't just be like, I want to feel it. In some ways, it's in doing, it's just adoring that you feel later the adorability of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when it comes to assurance, I think participating in the things that assure will lead to assurance, especially when you thank God for them. So, for example, the demonstration of Christ's death and resurrection while we were still God's enemies, Romans 5, right? Demonstrates God wants us to feel assured because he shows he loves us in the death and resurrection of Christ while we were still his enemies. Romans 8 has another explanation of this, how even though we're wretched, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because God is using the new law of the Spirit to free us and to change us into the image of his Son. Right. And so on. And those God who has, he's called for that, he's going to carry to completion and ultimately glorification, which is true perseverance and therefore assurance. Right. So I think by rehearsing those doctrines, professing your belief in those doctrines to God truthfully um, and, and um, applying those like in the Psalms where, where David will be like, you know, woe is me. This is terrible. And he t- talks about how he feels, and then he applies yep. the right theological truth and says, but this is true about God. Mm-hmm. And that repetition is an exercise in which yeah. you look at how you really feel, you're not denying anything, and then you apply the truth, and then you find your rest in God. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think yeah. that assurance is pursued by adoring the assuring truths themselves. Mm-hmm. Until they produce the feeling of assurance. Yeah. Which takes some effort and some um, discipline to do. Like even the example you gave about David and the Psalms, I was feeling sad the other day. I was like, I just want to find a Psalm where it's just sad, (laughs) where there isn't this like truth that David also reflects on. It was hard to do because he is disciplined in the practice of, I can feel this. I don't have to say I don't feel this way, but I will also choose to take a moment and meditate on what I know to be true of God, even if I don't feel it right now in this moment. And so, um, yeah, it takes it takes courage in that moment to be willing to do it. It takes discipline because it feels difficult, but it does do a turn in ourselves and in our our spirit of what we really are experiencing. Yeah. And in some of the Psalms, David explicitly says the feeling that he's dealing with is the feeling of abandonment, which is the most unassuring feeling you can imagine. And yet he still goes back to God's promises that are meant to cause him to feel assured. And then he has to make the decision, what does he believe more? His felt experience of feeling abandoned or God's promises that are, and therefore his character. Is God's character more trustworthy than his present experience, right? That's what the choice of faith always faces. Uh, Let's go to the next question about assurance. This says, so you talked a little bit in your sermon about delusional faith. So you may need to um, return to that and what you mean by that. But here's the question. What are the marked characteristics of a delusional faith? How do we approach these believers with love and speak truth to them with grace, especially those prone to take offense? Yeah. So I talk a little bit about this in our last AMA podcast. We talked about this for like 15 yep. minutes, I think at least in that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So some of the marked characteristics of delusional faith are um, the first most obvious is the absence of any transformation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, maybe that's not the first. The first is a refusal to confess the name of Jesus. Sure. Mm-hmm. So um, there's this joke. What what will make an Episcopalian look at their shoes? What? And the answer is to mention Jesus or to talk about money. <laughs> right? And the idea is like, you know, high culture, like waspy mm-hmm. Episcopalians. They're Episcopalians but they're uncomfortable with the word Jesus. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. um, I, I remember Mike and um, 
Henry Sanders being at a pastor's meeting in yeah. Madison with a lot of like sort of mainline liberal pastors. And they were talking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And like the guy stopped the meeting and was like, you guys need to leave. And they're like, what do you mean? They're like, we don't talk like that here. Well, they're like, what about Jesus? <laughs> like, yeah. You're, you're Presbyterians and stuff. And they're like, yeah. yeah, we don't. That's not what we do. That's not what we're doing. You need to. And like, literally they like kicked them out of the meeting. Yeah. And it's really, that was really funny. And it, yeah, awful. that's a, a mark of a, of a delusional faith. Right. Right. Yeah. They, like, we're good with Jesus. Like we're good religious people, and like, but we don't want to. We don't confess Christ. So, in First John, explicitly says, right. if you don't confess Christ, including His death and resurrection and atoning work for you, you're not a Christian. You just aren't. You just if you think you are, you're deluded. So you have to believe in Jesus, His death and resurrection, His death for you, His atonement. You have to believe the gospel, right? If you don't believe the gospel, but you say you're a Christian, but you don't believe the gospel, you're not a Christian. Okay. Yeah. Secondly, you love believers, mm-hmm. right? So have you ever met a person who says they're a Christian, but Christians are just too ridiculous for them to be around, right? Yeah. Okay. That is strong evidence that that person is not converted. Mm-hmm. Strong evidence, right? When they don't want to be counted among the church, when they don't want to be counted among other believers, and they, they'll have all kinds of sophisticated explanations for that. Well, I'm trying to reach like truly secular people, right? Or I'm trying to reach, you know, I'm, or I'm trying to do this, or I feel like the church is corrupt or blah, blah, blah. There's yeah. plenty of people who love Jesus, who are real Christians. You can't be counted with them. You can't be seen with them, right? Yeah. That's, that's strong evidence you're not a believer be- because they are the only thing on planet earth that's like Jesus. That's it. And if you don't love them, John says it this way. If you can't love them who you have seen, let's not kid ourselves that you love Jesus who you haven't seen. Mm-hmm. You're kidding yourself. Third is in first John, the third is love for the world. If you love the world, like the world loves the world, you're not a Christian. One of the immediate effect, the world is your mistress with God. Okay, that's what it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's your other God. It's mammon. It's the second God. It's your other religion. Okay. So when you realize that God is God, you realize you're not supposed to have a mistress. You realize that you can't have two religions. You can't share your allegiance. Jesus literally says, you'll love one and hate the other. And he's very Mm -hmm. clear what he means is you'll love mammon. You'll really hate God. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that doesn't work. You have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then everything else, that is all the mammon you need, will be added unto you, right? Mm -hmm. And so, love for the world, John says, is a dead-on indication that your faith is delusional. Now, that doesn't mean you immediately don't like anything about the world. Because we're still supposed to love creation and its inherently good things. But our worship of the world, our finding our salvation in it, that it's what makes our lives worthwhile. It's what makes us feel safe. It's what makes us feel okay. It's what makes us feel accepted. That begins to die. In 1 Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about we should relate to the world like it's not ours to keep. Mm -hmm. Right? So anything that's part of the world, if you're holding it in your hand metaphorically, and God grabs a hold of it and tears it out of your hand. Is it going to flow easily out of your hand or is he going to tear your arm off? Right. And for a lot of us, we cling mm-hmm. to the world such mm-hmm. that we'll get our arms ripped off. You know what I mean? Okay. So, so that's so a really how strong do we, one. Yeah. How do we oh, approach? I've got more. There's lots more. Okay. <laughs> you can keep going right. if Without you want holiness, to. But... No one will see the Lord. So transformation mm-hmm. has to be evident. Having the mind of the spirit or transformed mind, being growing in humility is an evidence of grace. So if you were to, if you look at all the evidences of grace, all the opposites of those evidence of grace are evidences of the lack of grace. Mm-hmm. So if instead of growing humility, there's persistent pride, but not growth in humility and no repentance, right? Like a non-repented person, for example, that's yeah. evidence of a delusional faith. Right. Mm-hmm. If you don't find yourself repenting, like, oh crap, I got that wrong. I got that wrong. Got that wrong. 
if you're just always right and you never feel like you have to apologize, you think you're mm-hmm. God. You're not converted. Mm-hmm. Right? Gro- the growing evidence of love, it's big. Is there evidence of love growing in you? So there's a lot of them. And the point is not if you can't see that you're growing in the grace of one of them, you're going to hell. It's you look at a battery of these things and you're like, is there, is there evidence to convict me that I'm part of yeah. this? Yeah. Right. In second Corinthians, Paul says, test and see whether you're in the faith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. On the basis of what he'd written from chapters one to 13. Sure. You know, so if we're in and then a, how to approach people. Yeah. If we're in a friendship with someone like this or a relationship with someone, how do we, how do we try to show this to them? As, and then it says, especially if they are prone to take offense, which, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> may be likely if their faith is diluted in some way or delusional yeah. in some way. Yeah. I just got in an email exchange with someone this week of somebody who was, their their parent gave them my book blueprint and they just really took offense at a couple of things and they were like who's this huh. guy I think he is i'm like has nothing to do with me yeah like you're you're personalizing something that's not personal i could give you the yeah. quotes from jesus himself and then you can belittle jesus you know yeah. and he just was he's, he wasn't he just wanted to feel like he didn't have to be a christian and he still got all the benefits of being christian yeah you know? so yeah, I think one, no relationship is worth being complicit in someone's ultimate damnation. Yeah. Because if it is, if you are complicit in someone's damnation, then you weren't their friend. Right, right. Right. So the question is Why don't you just, in one or two sentences, witness? In one or two sentences, can you just give a give an argument for that, that you're not being a good friend? Because maybe somebody hasn't heard you talk on that before. Oh, I'm, I guess I thought that was self-evident. Um, <laughs> if, in fact, we have spiritual destinies, then, and they last everlastingly, then our, and that is the, the truest determination of our real selves, then salvation is necessary for the everlasting well-being and someone not losing their being or their very self forever. And so you can't be faithful and loving towards someone if you are complicit in their destruction in both ways. Great. Which can't be. I don't care how many lattes you buy them or how much you listen to them complain sympathetically you're not their friend because love is to act in the true good of another person mm-hmm. not in in what they ask you to do right but in what you know is in their true good yeah and their eternal well-being is the most central and most consequential good that they must have yeah. So, okay. Anyway. Thank you. Now you can keep. So going. I would say you will have to dare some and feel your way along. Yeah. You know, but you will have to risk offense at some point. Mm-hmm. And um, it just, that just is what it is. You just, you ratchet it up slowly. Um, but remember in the old, in the old Testament, there are places where God even ridicules and humiliates people because that's all that's left to confront yeah. them with. Mm-hmm. He's been very loving, very patient. So you got to make sure that you're patient, really loving and patient and yeah. that you're doing it out of love and you're doing it because you care about them and mm-hmm. all that. But yeah, ultimately you have to say, you know, assurance is rooted in the working of God's grace in our lives, not just the fact that at some point you say you accepted Jesus. Right. Well, and I think, you know, I have plenty of experiences that I can look back on where I have thought that I've been doing this for the true good of somebody else, where I've thought it's Mm -hmm. been in love and with grace and kindness and compassion, when really it's just that I was mad at them because their actions were hurting me. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. because I really had their true good in mind. I had my own justification in mind. And so I, I think that's a really important check in those conversations. Yeah, sometimes it's even just that you're jealous of them sinning. Yeah. 
you know, they're not even really hurting you, but they're doing whatever they want. And you're like, I should be able to do whatever I want. Like you right. should be able to do whatever you want. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and you're really doing out of jealousy and you think you're mm-hmm. doing it out of love. So I think you've got to sort that out and then, yeah. and then dare, ju- there's this um, scene in the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is taking people through Moria where he says, I'm going to risk a little more light because he has this like staff with a little light on the end of it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like that. Like how much light should you shine mm-hmm. to get what you need done, done. But generally yeah. speaking, what you want to do is just encourage them towards godliness. Yeah. Instead of saying, look, if you don't do this, you're going to hell. You'd be like, look, you're, you belong to Jesus. Like you say you belong to Jesus. You're meant to be conformed into his image, to be like him, to be transformed to the renewing of your mind, to grow in divine love, to, to experience, um, what's the language in second Peter there to, um, to participate, participate in, in the divine the nature, divine and nature and to escape mm-hmm. the corruption of the world. Right. Like that's your inheritance. That's, that's what God both gives and demands. Yeah. Right. And you try to encourage them in that direction. Right. If you find persistent obstinacy, then yeah, you know, you have to stick them with a goad, you know, to poke mm-hmm. them forward. And yeah. sometimes that's confrontational. Um, okay, next question is this. What moment is someone's name written in the book of life? Or is that a more metaphorical moment? The short answer is I have no idea. <laughs> and I don't think anybody else does either, even if they say they do. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the main okay, that's reference a, to the book of Well, sorry. yeah, I mean, continue with what you were, you were going to continue. But I think – if someone came to you and this was their personal anxiety and they're coming to you because you're their pastor, how are you going to pastor them through this particular stressor? Um, yeah, I'm going to say that. So the idea of the book of life is not discussed that much, right? Most of the discussion of the book of life is in the book of revelation chapter 3, 13, 17, 20, and 21. And so if your name's in the book of life, then that's really good, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is you can't check that book out of the library. <laughs> so it's not like the existence of the book of life gives you assurance. Yeah. Right? Because only God knows whose names are written in it. Right. You don't know. So when Paul says about Clement and others so in uh, Philippians 4, 3, it says, um, yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, you know, what Paul is saying is he knows there is a book of life. He's sufficiently persuaded that these people are in fact really believers and the way he says that is their names are written in the book of life. Does that make sense? Um, also, it's important to recognize the first biblical reference in Psalm 69 is a reference to, it says, um, verse 28 in Psalm 69, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed among the righteous. So the first reference in the Bible to this thing, the book of life, the only Old Testament reference is specifically in relationship to the fact that someone's name could be blotted out, or at least that's what the psalmist is asking right. as a just punishment for someone that they, that they're not righteous. And so their name should be blo- blotted out from the book of the righteous or the mm-hmm. book of life. Right. And then the rest of the references in the Bible are all from revelation, which is apocalyptic literature, which is symbolic literature. It's hard to know in Revelation exactly what's literal and what's symbolic and in what ways it's symbolic. Now, I'm not saying that being symbolic, it's just mythology or like it's not going to happen or something. Yeah. I'm just saying things that are supposed to be symbols are symbols of something else God is going to concretely do. The fact that it might be a metaphor or a symbol doesn't take away anything from the true reality that God either has done or will do. Right? It's like when people say, well, I think fire and worms eating flesh in relationship to hell is a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I would say, okay, great. 
they use the worst possible thing you can imagine as the metaphor. So the real thing's probably worse and you can't even imagine it. So the fact that hell is meta quote metaphorical isn't good. It's worse. Right. 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 So anyway, the point is that, um, pinpointing when somebody's name would be put in the, in the book of life, it doesn't help with the experience of, of assurance. assurance. Mm-hmm. It, it is assuring to know generally that God is so exacting in his knowledge yeah. that he knows every single name that's in his book of life. Mm-hmm. And so God's knowledge of your salvation is particular to your name. Just like Jesus said, look, he knows the number of every single hair in your head. Mm-hmm. Right. Most women who have had, especially who have had children who in the hormone imbalance afterwards are putting clumps of hair on the <laughs> shower wall. Uh-huh. Right. And know how, how disposable of thing hair is. That's a comforting thing to know that he knows like every single hair. Right. And similarly, he knows every single name. Yeah. And the point is, is that no matter how chaotic final salvation will be, the the war of Christ and his bringing final judgment and all of that, that in the midst of all of it, justice will come down to every single name individually. Mm-hmm. And so you are not lost among the masses, mm-hmm. right? Your name is written in the book of life. Does that yeah. make sense? But that yeah. doesn't help you solve the problem. Is your name in the book of life? Right. Now the answer to when is your name written in the book of life? It's, when God counts you saved, which I don't know when that is. Yeah. Is it when you experience regeneration? Is it the moment where you express faith? Is it when you get baptized? Is it the fact that he knew you'd be saved from eternity past? And so he just jotted your name down before there was time. I don't know. (laughs) Right. I don't know. I mean, if God is outside of time and sees all things in the eternal present, I don't even know what that question would mean if the book is with him, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the, the the image of the book of life, whether literal or metaphorical, means the same thing. Mean It means God saves individuals. And as an individual person in all the mass of humanity, you are not lost or forgotten. Right. But it doesn't answer the question of whether or not your name is there. Does that yeah. make sense? Yep. Um, that kind of segues into, well, at least one thing that you said could segue into the last question on the topic of assurance, which is this, can you truly be saved, truly love the Lord, and then at some point turn away, leave God and no longer be saved? I don't think so. So... I'll do my normal 30 minute talk on this in a couple minutes. Okay. So there's essentially three Protestant views on this. Okay. So the Catholic and Orthodox view is a little different. It's kind of like these, but it's also a little different because of the, the doctrine of the infusion of grace and moral sin, all that. So there's three views. One is called um, once saved, always saved. Mm-hmm. One is usually referred to as the ability to lose your salvation, that you can lose your salvation. I'm using colloquial names. Yeah. And the third is perseverance of the saints. Okay. That's usually associated with Calvinism and Reformed theology. The second, that you can lose your salvation, is usually connected to Arminian theology, which is usually connected with Methodists, most charismatics are Arminians, and so on. And then the first is connected with dispensationalism. So a lot of independent churches, independent Baptist churches, some charismatic churches and Pentecostal churches. Anyway. So the first, once saved, always saves, is a phenomenological approach. That is the way you see it from your perspective. So if I see Nicole come up to the front of the church, cry and say, I repent of my sins and I believe in Jesus. If I see her do that, she did it. She confessed Jesus and she believed. And right. so she's saved. And once she's done that, she's saved, period. Her name is written in the book of life. She's going to heaven. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the dispensational view. Okay. The second is that you can lose your salvation. That is, she can come into the church. She can pray that prayer. She can confess Christ. And then later she can repudiate it. Mm-hmm. And then she was saved and then she loses her salvation. Okay. Mm-hmm. This third is the perseverance of the saints is a metaphysical view. That is, you can't see it in real time. 
Because what it states is that those who are truly saints, that is, have really been saved, will persevere. Mm-hmm. Right? So they will make it to the end and be saved because they were saved all along. Right. Okay. Now, I think that third view is the closest to the biblical teaching. Because the first view does not admit the possibility of delusional false conversion. Right. And the Bible has quite a large category for delusional false conversion. Right. Right. Matthew 7 alone would probably be enough, but there's a lot of other passages. That's the passage where Jesus says, many will come to me in that day, the day of judgment, and say, Lord, right. Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Right. Right. So if you don't admit for the possibility of delusional conversion, you're just wrong, I think, according to the Bible. So the, the dispensational view, though it has a lot to be said for it, mm-hmm. right? because salvation is that simple, and phenomenologically, that is what you do. You repent of your sins and you believe. Yeah. And you should believe on the basis of that that you're saved. Right? The, the idea that you could be saved and lose your salvation, most people will quote Hebrews chapter 6 for that, where it says, if you've... Well, I should probably bring it up here really quick. Give me just one second. Can you say something profoundly interesting for a second? Yes. Um, I was. I had a snack of a bowl of popcorn next to me during, <laughs> while we were recording this, and about three minutes ago, my husband walked into the kitchen and took the bowl of popcorn and left. And now oh, I don't have good. my snack anymore. He's just looking out for you. Okay, so... Verse four in chapter six of Hebrews, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. And then it goes on to talk about uh, a piece of land that is unfruitful, and so you burn it, mm-hmm. and it's like twice cursed. Right? And he's like, that's what it's like to believe in them. Now, the reason why a lot of people believe that view is that on the basis of that passage, to hold to either the first or third view, you've got to believe that the person being described here wasn't really saved. So, but the thing is, how can that description be short of real salvation? Right. right? They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of God and the power of the coming age. Okay. How can that be Uh someone who's not a believer? Right. I remember having a... yeah, sorry. Anecdotally, you hear of these people who I remember going to, a, I think it was a debate in college once that was between a Christian and someone who was a pastor who was convinced that they had had been a Christian and then walked away and were now an atheist. And so you hear those sorts of stories yeah. as well. What do you do with that? Right. Right. And so the reform formed or that third position, the perseverance of the saints, is that they say that person was never really saved. But the problem with that is, is that it's hard to imagine how this description could be describing something else. Yeah. If this is describing a person who's someone who's not really saved, what, what could it possibly be describing? Right. Right. So anyway, um, so on the basis of that passage and a few others, people have said, you clearly can experience the new birth and then walk away from it and repudiate it and be lost. And if that happens, you can't be regained. So the walking away isn't like just you don't go to church for a month or like you kind of slide away. It's almost like a reverse conversion. Hmm. You confessed Christ, and at some point, either in action or in word, you really repudiate Christ. And when you do that, you become lost. Right? Now, though Wait, that's a real thing... can I ask a, a clarifying thing, question? Yeah. Did I just hear you correctly that people who hold that view then would say, and you can't come back again? Right. However, 
I don't know anybody who holds any of these views who believes that phenomenologically. Meaning, you could never have a person who's like, I want to follow Jesus. And you're like, nope, you blew it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anybody who comes back, right? Because it says, um, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, right? So the point there is, you can't get the person back to the state of repentant, being repentant. What that assumes then is if the person did come back to a state of repentance, then this doesn't apply. Because if you come back to a state of repentance, you could be saved. So there's nobody in, in any of these views yeah, yeah. that if they want to follow Jesus, they, can. they should be like, well, I've committed the unpardonable sin. I'm going to hell. There's nothing I can do. Yeah. There's no such person. What he's saying, though, is that if you taste of God this way and then you walk away, your heart will be seared mm-hmm. and it will never be awoken again. And so you'll never be able to come back to repentance. And so you'll be lost and twice cursed. Does that make sense? So the warning here is be really careful what you do to your own heart. Because you think, well, I could just come back to God later. But that may not be true. You may be so damaging your own conscience and heart and capacity for faith that you'll never come back again. So... Yeah. So anyway, uh, that's one part. And so the third version is the perseverance of the saints. That's if you're really saved, you'll persevere, right? That's the view I favor if I have to pick one of these. Yeah. That anybody who's actually saved, their salvation will be proved in the operation of grace in their life as they persevere to the end. Mm -hmm. So God gives them the free gift of holiness, but it produces always godliness. Yeah. And it's the production of that persevering grace that produces the assurance that real salvation has happened, right? You test and see whether you're in the faith. Will Jesus say in the last day, I really knew you, right? Do you confess Jesus? Do you love the brethren or the other Christians? And are you falling out of love with the world, right? All that stuff. Do you have the mind of the spirit? Are you putting to death the mind of the flesh, etc.? And if that's operational, it means you are saying already, because these are all the works of grace. They're the works of a regenerate person, which means salvation has truly happened. Right. And so that, in that view, so what, what that means is, is that assurance is different in all three views. In the first view, if you ever repented of your sins and accepted Jesus, mm-hmm. you have permanent assurance forever. Mm-hmm. So it has a strong doctrine of assurance. The problem is probably a false one. Right. To put it in the words of John Wesley, a doctrine like that sends a lot of people to hell with smiles on their faces. Yeah. Right. You feel assured, but, you can't, but you're susceptible to a false positive in your mm-hmm. assurance. Mm-hmm. That doctrine doesn't allow you to recognize delusion. Mm-hmm. And so it's a problem. The second doctrine doesn't really give you a lot of objective assurance, right? And John Wesley used to say, that's not the point. The point is is that God sheds his love abroad in your heart when you're converted. You receive the direct effective assurance of the present love of God. And so in the gospel, you experience assurance as you follow Jesus and believe in him. Very similar to the second view or the third view. The only difference between those two is in the second view, the Arminian view, if you fall away, you're lost. In the third view, if you fall away, you weren't ever really saved. But you see, in both of the second cases, the second and third, you have to persevere to be saved, right? But the problem is, that's what the Bible seems to teach. There are a lot of passages that argue that perseverance is necessary. Yeah. And dispensational theology, at least in the older versions of it, that produce the once saved, always saved doctrine, they just don't take that into account properly, I don't think. And what it has produced in a lot of cases is a lot of people who are inoculated against the gospel. It's like they've received a vaccine. Mm-hmm. You preach the gospel and they're like, I already know this. I'm already saved. Yeah. Right? They can like be destroying their children and cheating everybody and yeah. they're like to be full of vices and they're like, look, I accept Jesus. I'm going to hell. I'm going to heaven. The the gift God gave me, he'll never take away. Right. Right. 
those who God gives the shepherd Jesus, no one can snatch them out of his hands. Like I'm saved. Yep. And I think that's terrifying. Yeah. It's a terrifying doctrine. But listen, for those who are really saved, it's 100% true. Yeah. But it's not true for those who are deluded about their salvation when they make a confession. Yeah. Right. So that's why I believe a view that holds you to perseverance is necessary. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. I don't say one of those three views is 100% right. I don't know. What I know is that the, what the Bible teaches, which is perseverance is necessary, it's possible to be deluded about your salvation. So the means of assurance, when I read the doctrines of assurance in the Bible, it's not, did you confess Jesus? Well, then you're saved. No, 1 John covers a lot more than that. Yeah. So does 1 Thessalonians. So does every place that talks Mm -hmm. about assurance. So a simplistic doctrine of assurance was never Jesus' intention. Yeah. Um, as you've been talking about a handful of things in this in this conversation, it's reminded me of a sermon that we went through the, um, the Gospel of Luke a while ago. And I, I'm not going to get all the specifics of this right, so you can correct me where you need to. But it was something where Jesus was teaching and some people asked, was this city ruined? Was this a judgment on them? Um, mm-hmm. and it, the, the Tower of Siloam, I think it was. And I... I remember from Jesus's response and your preaching of that sermon that his response was, you need to be more concerned about yourself than about what happened to them. And then I started to see more of that as I read the gospels. And as I read through the new Testament, I thought about too, and this isn't the identical situation as terms of a question of judgment or salvation, but even when Jesus reappears to Peter after he has already died and he says to Peter, what's going to happen to him, how he's going to have this death. And then Peter looks over at John. He's like, what about him? And Jesus's response is, don't worry about him. You must follow me. And I, I think that that has been a really helpful, like Scott and I have talked about that before. And when we've had family members pass away, we've talked about that, that our, what the, we need to be more in. And I think it relates to this question of assurance that there, we, in some sense, we can be assured of our salvation and also have to be continually pursuing and participating in the work that God is doing in our lives. And it's a hard thing. I think it can be a, a, like a challenging thing for me to balance those and to hold them together. But I, the more mm-hmm. I've learned about it, the more I see it in Scripture too. Yeah. I, I also want to do a plug for self-deception. Because once you put on glasses to see delusion and self-deception in the Bible, you're going to find it everywhere. (laughs) It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And once you embrace that, you might be like, well, if I embrace that, I'll never feel assured again the rest of my life. Uh, Maybe. I doubt that. But what you will see is incredibly productive vistas of your sin. Like the productive effect of being like, oh, the reason why I don't know how to grow is because I'm completely deluded about a bunch of things. And that leads you into a much deeper pursuit of sanctification. And are you really loving people? And are you really telling people the truth? And are you really doing all these things you think you're doing? And the answer is in many cases, not really. Yeah. And so I think it's incredibly helpful. And and you'll also see the argument everywhere. I mean, like Romans 1 is almost entirely about the fact that human beings are professional truth suppressors. Mm-hmm. I mean, like that's that's like our gig. It's like yeah. we shut down the truth. Mm-hmm. Ro- or John 3. Everybody's like, John 3, 16 is so fantastic. Well, just keep reading because verses 17 through like 21 are – we're all like cockroaches. And whenever the light shines, we scurry away from it as fast as we can because we don't want to be exposed by the light, right? Meaning that's what humans are. We, we're we like insects that scurry away from the truth because we don't want to be exposed. That's our heart. That's our real behavior, right? You start buying into that stuff and you're like, oh, I have a very leisurely relationship with the truth. Right. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is the truth. Mm-hmm. At, at the heart, the doctrine of assurance might be most easily laid out in John chapter 15. He is the vine and you are the branches. 
if you abide in him, if you are in him, if you receive, if you're receiving from him to produce fruitfulness in your life, you're in the vine and you're a yeah. fruitful branch. Well, you know, if that- you're not, you get pruned and thrown in the fire, it says. Mm-hmm. So the real question is not, did you say something years ago? It's, do you profess Christ and are you in him right now? Yeah. And if so, you have assurance. You should feel deeply assured. Yeah, that passage um, actually last week when we were doing this and talking about assurance came to mind be- and did. And then when you were saying this now, because when I was going through a season in my faith of feeling a lack of assurance, that was the passage that kind of was a light bulb for me too, because in the passage, it talks about cutting off branches that don't bear fruit, but he does still prune the branches that are there. Right. And I, yeah, everybody gets cut. Yeah. And, but that was really yeah. helpful for me to realize like, oh, this is, this is pruning. That's a good sign. Even though it's painful, right. that's a good sign. That's evidence of God working in my life. And that can bring me a sense of peace and assurance in my relationship with him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm afraid you may have stimulated the question in people's minds. How do I tell the difference between yeah. me being pruned and cut off, which is another yeah. hour. Yeah. So well, we'll, somebody asked that question and we'll, <laughs> we'll answer it. There you go. All right. Let's turn to the final question. This is uh, a, not on the topic of assurance, but back to the question of imitation. Um, so this question says, would you consider the laying of hands as a way to transmit what one has received in grace. I think they mean transmit to another what one has received in grace, but maybe not. I think I would say yes. You know, um, laying your hands on people, I think can symbolize a number of things. Um, but yeah, we do it in with the sense that God, yeah, transmits His grace from us into others or through us into others. It's also an act of affirmation. It's an act of care, right? Mm-hmm. We touch the person physically in the stead of Christ, because if Jesus was there in compassion, He would have touched that person. And so, hopefully, they feel the presence of a loving person which allows them to to feel that in the stead of how we would be there, how Christ would be there and is spiritually that they can't feel. Um, it's also the, it's also an act of authority in the Bible. So putting your hands on someone indicates either receiving them back into the church after church discipline that they've received the forgiveness of Christ, or it's often used in ordination to put somebody in a position of authority or responsibility to designate them with authority. So, but in a lot of ways, those are all in some ways transmissions of grace because the word grace is such a catch all. Sure. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think you could just say yes to that question. Great. Yeah. But right. and, and let me say this on that. I think we should do it a lot more. I know sometimes it feels hokey to people and stuff, but I think one of the, if I could change one thing about High Point Church, just wave like my like Harry Potter wand <laughs> and said some Latin word and it just changed, <laughs> it would be like the Latin word for pray yeah. and receive prayer. Um, if I could change one thing, I would have... 35 people come up for prayer every Sunday morning or that most people ask the person right next to them in the pew for prayer every week and prayed for someone every week. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's an enormous amount of power and effectiveness in our faith that we just, we just don't talk to God and we don't ask God for things. And what we do, sometimes we do with bad motives. Like I think prayer and attending to God himself is an area that we have, I think we still just avoid it. I think it's uncomfortable to put ourselves before the living God. And we're honestly, frankly, just still too secular Mm -hmm. to ask a spirit to help us in our concrete lives that we manage. But I, I just think that God doesn't, I think God withholds himself from people too good to refer to him. And not just refer to him, but like attend to him and turn to him. 
And I think that we have to, I think it's great for us to be educated and intelligent and say like multi-syllabic words. But sometimes I feel like we, we have, we're really out of touch with God and we speak about him well and speak to him very little. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I just would really encourage people to talk to God, honestly. Yeah. And ask him for things and then to lay hands on other people and pray for the grace of God in all its forms to pour tr- and transmit through you in the Holy Spirit to another person and ask him for things that only he can do. And if you do that, it's it's amazing what God does. I've seen so many examples of it. Yeah. You know. So, all right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in, for listening, and um, for joining us for this conversation. As long as we're still in quarantine and live streaming, we will be here next week with another set of leftover AMA questions. So we hope that you, um, we hope that this was helpful, and we'll we'll see you next time. Bye bye. listening to this episode of the engage and equip podcast if you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org if you'd like to find more episodes you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast you can also find us on apple podcasts google podcasts overcast and other apps like that we hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church if this episode was helpful to you rate or review us on apple podcasts or share this episode with a friend Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.